Welcome to Playthink, conversations about games, interactivity, art, and culture. This podcast is recorded live at the USC Game Innovation Lab, which is part of the USC Games program at the University of Southern California. For more information, follow us on Twitter at USC Game Lab or visit our website at gameinnovationlab.com slash playthink. Welcome to Playthink, a special edition of Playthink, a studio edition of Playthink. That means we are just talking one-on-one today uh, with our guests, and we are lucky uh, to have the game scholar, uh, Bonnie Ruberg, here. Bonnie Ruberg is assistant professor in the Department of Informatics at the program in Visual Studies at the University of California, Irvine. Their research explores gender and sexuality in digital media and digital cultures with a focus on queerness and video games. They are the author of Video Games Have Always Been Queer, which came out this year, 2019, on New York University Press, uh, and the Queer Games Avant-Garde, which is forthcoming from Duke University uh, Press, uh, and is also uh, the co-editor of Queer Game Studies, which came out in 2017 on University of Minnesota Press. Ruberg is also the co-founder and co-organizer of the annual Queerness and Games Conference. They received their PhD with certification in New Media and Gender and Sexuality Studies from the University of California, Berkeley, and served as provost postdoctoral fellow right here in the Interactive Media and Games Division at the University of Southern California. Bonnie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks very much for having me. I'm really excited to be back here in a place that I spent a lot of time. Uh, I'm Jeff Watson, uh, for anyone who cares, and uh, I'm very, uh, very glad to be able to talk to you more today, Bonnie. Um, I'm an assistant professor here uh, in interactive media and games, and I'm really interested in all your work. So what I wanted to talk to you or talk with you about today, uh, I know later on we'll be having a, a, a public talk where you'll be talking about your book. Uh, and uh, so I do want to talk about the book a little bit. I also want to talk about uh, s- several of the papers you've published over the past year. You've had a really prolific year. Um, and uh, so I want to just jump right in and uh, maybe frame everything by asking you to just tell us what you mean uh, by the title of your book, Video Games Have Always Been Queer. Yeah. Um... So, uh, I don't I really like the boldness of this title. I know it's the title of my own book, but I really enjoy it. Um, so the idea there is that um, we have this medium that we think of as expressive and creative and wonderful in all these ways, but we know that video game culture is often exclusionary towards queer folks, LGBT folks. We know that a lot of games, especially mainstream games, don't tend to have queer characters in them. So there's this kind of idea that video games aren't queer, or they're not queer spaces. Um, But the argument of the book is that actually we can find queerness in games in ways that go beyond representation. So we can find it in design, in play, in interpretation. And if we start thinking about video games that way, then we can start to see the whole medium like that. Um, And then we get to this much bigger kind of political, almost activist claim that actually the whole medium of video games can in some way be seen as queer and always has been. So it gets to belong to us as queer people, so it's like an it's like an act of resistance, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so uh, one of these phrases, book is full of a lot of uh, really evocative compressions of some of those ideas. Mm. Uh, one of the ones that stood out to me is the queer art of failing at video games. <laughs> uh, could you just tell our listeners a little bit about what you mean by that queer art of failing at video games? Yeah. So, um, 
there are these two books that came out at nearly the same time that I was struck by as a grad student when I started this work. Um, Jack Halberstam's book, which is called The Queer Art of Failure, to make sure I get them straight, and Jesper Yule's book, which is called The Art of Failure. They came out nearly the same time. Um, Jack Halberstam's book is about queer theory and queer lives. Jesper Yule's book is about games. And so the idea is, how do we have these two books that are so similar that are both arguing about the importance of failure? What if we put them together? And we end up with this idea that video games are about failure to a certain extent, right? We fail all the time, we try again, we try again. And then what Jack Halberstam says is failure is in some ways queer. It's about failing to live up to this kind of standard of a normal life um, in terms of gender and sexuality and marriage and success. So if we think about them that way, then we get video games being a kind of queer medium, right? If we go and we fail and we take pleasure in failing, and um, there's something fundamentally queer about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, that, that's, that, that's a very kind of uh, crystallized uh, boiling down of what I think, you know, the book uh, explores in, in, from a bunch of different perspectives. Um, one thing that's sort of connected to that idea uh, that, that stood out to me because of some of my own interests in, in this area um, is your critique of gamification mm. um, and your idea of, well, you have a few different sort of riffs on gamification. You have this, like, de-gamification idea that you talk about um, and then also this re-gamification idea that you talk about and, and in both of those cases kind of connecting back to some of this uh, thinking about uh, queerness and failure. Um, so, so could you talk a little bit about that? Uh, yeah. I think a lot of our listeners are interested in, in this this topic because it's we, we all know from, you know, most game designers are pretty hostile to this idea of, of gamification, <laughs> right? And I'm glad. Uh, yeah. uh, that's a good thing. Um, yeah, but it's actually, there are still areas that I encounter, I don't know about you, that where gamification is still seen as this kind of uncritically good thing. Like, I see it in um, education, I see it in games for, like, quote-unquote pro-social behavior, um, and I'm very critical of gamification for the same reason I think a lot of games folks are, right? That it um, takes people's lives, it takes people's work, and it ends up kind of exploiting them by turning their work into a gamified system. Um, so I'm definitely an anti-gamification person. Um, but in the book, I talk about um, what I see as de-gamification. Um, so games that actually take things that are kind of gamified in real life and break them down and kind of strip away those game-like elements. So I talk about a, a game called Realistic Kissing Simulator, which I really love. Um, which is... Uh, <laughs> which everybody should just immediately go to. It's oh my God, playable it's so through good. a browser. Yeah. Go check it totally out. Totally yeah. free, browser-based, get a friend. Some people play together, that's a whole, or play by themselves, that's like a whole other thing where you make out with yourself. Um, but it's just these two faces that face each other. You've had, you have these long floppy tongues and you lick each other. <laughs> you kind of poke each other in the eye um, and there's no goal. Uh, so it was made by Jimmy Andrews and Lauren Schmidt. They're two really amazing queer indie game makers. And the point was that it has no goal. Um, and so their idea was that often when we think about sex or intimacy, it's like we're supposed to win something. We're supposed to be really good at it. We're supposed to get the most pleasure. Um, and instead, there's no, there's no accomplishment. There's just kind of a like strange, goofy intimacy. So to me, that model's a kind of um, de-gamification, like taking the game elements out of something to liberate it and give it back to just mm -hmm. like free-form play. Right, and then out of that play, 
there is this opportunity to kind of re-gamify it or, yeah. or apply a new kind of set of goals and constraints. Yeah. Yeah, so I think about um, this amazing board game called Consentical that Naomi Clark was the lead designer on. Um, and the way this works is that you are playing through this sexual encounter between a human and an alien. And it has all of these gamified elements. So all these kind of traditional tabletop elements like tokens for intimacy and cards for like, I lick you and you <laughs> penetrate me. Um, and when I first played it, I was like, come on, Naomi, like, you're amazing, but this is a little messed up. Like, we're taking this, like, queer intimacy, and you're going to turn it into points? There's all these metrics. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I had a conversation with her that really changed my thinking, where she was like, that's the point. Like, it's a critique. It uses design and gamified elements to say, hey, even in queer sex, even in queer communities where we think we're being so, you know, non-normative, there's still a lot, we're still trying to vie to be the best and to show we're really great at sex and to get the most pleasure. So it kind of gamifies as a way of critiquing. Mm -hmm. uh, sort of yeah. helps to disclose these games that are yeah. are, are operating, uh, you know, sort of beneath our perception to some degree, or at least beneath our attention. Yeah. Um, and, and uh, you know, that's a really interesting political intervention. And I think it, it actually connects to some of these other uh, writings. I mean, I, you, you probably also feel that connection, having so. having yeah. written these things. Yeah. Um, you know, so uh, you know, one one thing that you say when you're you're having this discussion, I, I think it's when you're talking about consensical, um, you talk about regamification, and and uh, you say the real opposite of gamification um, is recognizing that in many ways the lives we live in our contemporary Western industrial society are already quite game-like. Yeah. Um, so you've, you've spoken a, a bit about sex already in, yeah. that, in that context because of Consensical. What are some other uh, examples that, that come to your mind? And um, in particular, I'm looking to maybe talk about some of your, your writing about streaming. Yeah, I mean, so in terms of other stuff that's gamified, <laughs> I mean, work is gamified, right? Yeah. Money is these systems of like doing something to accrue points that allow you to get more things. Like that's what capital is. That's what our capitalist understanding of labor is. That's what academia is, right? That you um, produce things and you teach and you publish so you get points, so you get tenure, so you go up the ladder, right? Um, so that's the lives that we inhabit. Um, streaming is, is also a really interesting case. So I've started this work with um, some of my collaborators at UC Irvine, where I teach, on uh, kind of gender and sexuality in live streaming, because it's so closely tied to video games. Um, and streaming is a whole gamified system. So for anyone who's streamed, we look mostly at Twitch, there's a whole back-end interface that's about like getting the most subscribe, like getting more subscribers, getting more viewers, um, le like literally leveling up. Right. It's um, heavily gamified. Absolutely. And it keeps getting more so. They keep like making it a more and more intricate system. So it, it comes into like platform politics too. Yeah, yeah. And, I, I, you know, I read your paper on uh, what gets, uh, your, your paper's called Nothing But a Titty Streamer, Legitimacy, Labor, and the Debate Over Women's Breasts in Video Game Live Streaming. Uh, and so maybe uh, as a way of getting a little further into this conversation, you could just give us a little background on that term and and how this connects to those uh, those ideas of, uh, uh, you know, sort of the, the gamification of our relations with yeah. one another. Yeah, so it's a paper that I wrote with um, two of my really amazing grad students, Amanda Cullen and Kat Brewster. Um, and we have been running this little research group where we try and understand how 
um, gendered bodies are related to labor and live streaming. So the, this term, titty streamer, is one of a few different terms that gets thrown around to say that women streamers aren't legitimate streamers. So someone will get called a titty streamer, and it means you're not a real gamer, you're not really there to play a game, you're just there to show off your body. Um, implicitly, it kind of means you're a cam model, right? Like as if you're mm -hmm. a, an online sex worker. Um, there are actually a lot of connections between streaming and camming, but that's kind of another thing. Um, so yeah, so it's a way to kind of police like who's a real gamer, right? Do, do we see parts of your body that we associate with women? Do you have too much cleavage? Sometimes it's about camera angle. If your camera is too steep, then you are a titty streamer. Um, if your camera is just on your face, then you're a legitimate women, woman streamer. Um, so it's, it's very much a system of like who gets to count as a real streamer, and it's totally tied to like the gendered kind of sexist perceptions of people's bodies. Right. Yeah, it seems like, uh, so you did the research on this. Part of the research was looking at Reddit groups. Yeah. Um, and, and sort of looking at the various sentiments around uh, you know, the, this term and, and other related terms. Um, uh, and uh, it seems like one of the common threads was this, this resentment from non-breast owners yeah. um, at, at almost like they felt like there was a, a kind of cheating going on, yeah. like an unfair advantage in that game of Twitch. You know, the, uh, the, the titty streamer uh, has this ability to draw attention and hold attention that the, uh, the non-breasted uh, uh, streamer doesn't have. And so then that created some sort of sense of resentment. Yeah, I think that's totally right. Yeah, the, the thing that we studied specifically is we went into the Twitch subreddits. Um, my student, Amanda, is amazing for having a very strong stomach and going deep <laughs> into Twitch and into the subreddits um, and pulling out some very noxious stuff. Um, but uh, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. There's a kind of game system that people see around Twitch where it's like, uh, it's the kind of toxic meritocracy. Like, you are supposed to be the best at video games. You're supposed to be the most serious about video games. You're not supposed to show your body. And that means that you deserve all the attention. You deserve all the money, right? Because you mm -hmm. can make money streaming. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so there's a kind of economy of people's views, people's attention, people's capital. Um, but the idea that if you have breasts and you're presenting yourself in the wrong way, quote unquote, you're, you're stealing. You're, you're cheating the system, like you're saying because you're not focused on games the way you should be, and instead you're, you're stealing attention away with your body. Right. And I think, you know, part of it has to do with uh, the sort of the imaginary of the um, uh, sort of ideal, this idealized, typically male yeah. gamer that, you know, I, I just sort of thinking of something semi-related, uh, this notion of like kind of almost, you know, role-playing as like the tactical operator, like I'm a serious you know, gamer, I'm, I'm doing serious work, and, and you're sort of undermining it by bringing these other factors into, into the equation. Um, what are the roles of the actual games uh, in this? Like, did you find, like I, I have written down here, I can't imagine this sort of discussion or really this sort of streaming happening with something like the game 80 Days, say, mm. but maybe I'm wrong about that. I don't know what kinds of games did this seem to cluster around. Yeah, that's a good question. How, that's not something we looked at directly in terms of correlating like, okay, women who are being called these names and delegitimized in these ways, what are they playing? That's interesting. I would, 
if I had to guess, I would bet that you're probably right, that it's probably the people who get most harassed for their bodies are probably playing the most, like, quote-unquote, mainstream competitive games. Right. Um, and the stuff that's biggest on Twitch is the stuff that's also, like, esports titles. Right. So I would bet, I would bet that that's probably where you get it the worst, is, like, you're playing real games, quote-unquote, but you're doing it as someone who doesn't look the way that they think a gamer is supposed to look. Right. Did, did you come across, like, uh, sort of similar like uh, feelings of resentment toward others who were like playing games but in maybe like that that not super serious way like sometimes we yeah. see people you know beefing with each other over who's the most hardcore or something like that yeah I mean I think there's definitely an attitude towards people who are seen as too casual um, Twitch does have whole categories that are um, like IRL or just chatting so people who aren't even playing games um, and I would totally guess that um, gamers of this variety see those people as, as less Less than. legitimate. Yeah, yeah. But, um, but I think actually the people who are getting the most active harassment, the people who there's this whole kind of world of um, negative discourse around all these, all these terms, I think that really is women who are playing video games, you know? Um, that it's that intersection of like games and women's bodies that just makes people mad. You know? Is there... So, you know, I, I think we can leave the games themselves aside a yeah. little bit. Um, but is there something, you know, we started this part of the conversation talking about the gamification of, yeah. of Twitch. And so what, to what degree uh, did your research find or have you been thinking about the actual structure of Twitch as sort of encouraging this sort of invidious behavior among people and this, this kind of uh, competitive orientation that might lead to this kind of behavior yeah so there are a bunch of things about twitch as a as a platform uh, like their their gamified systems but also their policies um, so that's something we've been looking at is how their community guidelines um actually kind of replicate the the ground for this like toxic culture so if you go into their community guidelines um they're very strict well it's strict is a kind of complicated term but they say a lot about like not being able to show nudity um you can't stream topless um, there's a lot of language that's gender-coded about right. needing to cover your body up. Um, but there's not a lot for like what you see in games. So you can play a game as a woman in a bikini. You can't stream as a woman in a mm. bikini. Um, so the women themselves, like real women streaming, are much more heavily regulated than the mm. content of games themselves. So it kind of creates this culture where people feel like, well, in a game, I can play whatever, right? I can play... We, we all know lots of games that have women like dressed really scantily, right? They can play those, that's fine. Um, but women themselves can't make the decision to present their own bodies mm. in that way. So it kind of like stirs up that, that sexist culture. That's really interesting. I, I mean, it, it's almost like there's a part of that that's just this impulse to decorporealize like yeah. the player, you know, and, and like bringing attention to our, our bodies. You say at one point here that, you know, it's important to remember that all streamers, the, the, their bodies are involved. Yeah. You know, and it's just this certain sort of, well, very gendered uh, view of, of the body that is, is, is sort of leading to uh, a lot of these um, behaviors and also comes out of, right out of the, uh, the terms of service. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, a couple more points on this, and then I wanted to, to move on to another paper, but... Um, you know, it strikes me that uh, misogyny then and the sort of uh, dismissal and de delegitimizing 
of um, uh, non-men on, on these platforms uh, becomes almost like a special mechanic mm. that is uh, justified by the perception that women and and others uh, breasted people in the, in, the, in, the, yeah. in the case of this article, you know, have this unfair advantage. And so it's, it almost like justifies to some degree uh, the, the, the sort of a, a assault on them. Is that part of the sort of psychological dynamic that you oh, sort yeah. of sense there? I think absolutely. I think there's a sense that um, people who have these attitudes have that's like, well, if women would just not try and attract attention this way, if they would just focus on video games then we wouldn't have to attack them. It's because they shouldn't be here, right? They, people think that they're ruining Twitch. They think that they're making Twitch into pornography. They think that they're ruining the reputation of Twitch. So people, I think, think... Ironically. In some, <laughs> yeah. in some twisted way, I think they do think that they're actually um, helping video games, helping Twitch and the kind of like whole world around games by pushing out these women who don't deserve to be there. Right. Is, is the idea. Like cleaning it up, like it's yeah. a moral panic type situation. It's absolutely a moral panic, yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. So what can we do to, is, what can we do about this? Can we advocate yeah. for Twitch to do something differently, for example? Yeah, I mean, so uh, terms of service and community guidelines is one thing, like trying to get them to create community guidelines that are less sexist and gendered. Um, people are doing work on moderation tools, um, mm -hmm. so because there's a chat that goes alongside Twitch streams, it can, if you're a popular streamer, it can go really fast. So people have like um, people who are moderators, but also bots who are moderator, that are moderators. So kind of people working on new technologies to help weed out, um, you know, there are all these new terms. It's not necessarily titty streamer, it's titty streamer, cam girl, thought, like mm -hmm. uh, bots that can keep up with the yeah. sexist language. Um, and I think like, supporting women streamers, supporting streamers who are different, like streamers of color, streamer with, streamers with different bodies. Right. And um, yeah. with different approaches and different yeah. sort of orientations toward how, like, quote, seriously yeah. to take what they're doing. I mean, um, I've always thought, so my students are really into the idea of streaming as part of their research practice. Um, and the thing that I've always wanted to do, I don't know if it's research, but I just w wish I had the time, was I want to wear a full dinosaur suit. So, like, head to toe, like, you can't see anything. I'm just a dinosaur. I want my username to be Dinosaur64, and I just want to play Mario 60, which is my favorite game. I just want to play Mario 64 endlessly as a full-suited dinosaur. <laughs> just because, like, that's... Why not? Right. I like, it's I like, like performance art. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But, like, yeah. with the intimacy of people there with you, yeah. you know? So it's that kind of stuff that I wish we could support. It's like strange things at the margins. Right, yeah. Um, I would really love to see that. I would too. <laughs> I have to find that I was on Amazon at some point being like, okay, it can't be that really tall T-Rex because I won't be able to see well enough and use my hands. Right. It can't just be a, a like pajama onesie because that's not like dinosaur enough. Right. Yeah, and you've got to think about how to not like crop off the top of the dino mm -hmm. head. That's a good point. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of concerns here. Or just full dinosaur suit, but with like a cutout around my chest. So it's like full dinosaur, but cleavage. Like yeah, no other skin, that would be perfect. Cleavage. Yeah, they'll love that. They, they will not <laughs> love that one bit. <laughs> um, so speaking of platforms, I'm also really interested in some of your uh, recent writing on the precarious labor of queer indie game makers. Yeah. Um, We've, uh, you know, here and, and in many other quarters, uh, you know, really been celebrating that work for, for a long time now. 
Um, but like a lot of things, uh, it seems like, uh, you know, uh, and particularly like a lot of things associated with play and the digital, uh, there's not always like an unambiguous win um, when, when we're talking about, um, you know, things that happen that involve the Internet in particular. Uh, so, you know, uh, maybe you could help our listeners to understand what is or can be hidden uh, sort of beneath this, the, the just purely celebratory rhetoric around uh, new voices and, and, and greater diversity coming into the indie game scene. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think I am super excited about all of the queer work that's out there. It's really, I mean, it's 2019, so gosh, it's been like seven years or so since we started to see some of these really amazing works come out. And I, there are just hundreds and hundreds. Like if you go on itch and you look for the LGBTQ tag, like it's like more than a thousand yeah. titles. It's So that is awesome. I'm super happy about that. But I think it's the way that those queer indie games get taken up by um, not just straight people, but the kind of cultures that surround them that are sometimes problematic. So when we are really excited about these queer indie games and we teach them and we talk about them, um, we don't always think about the financial situations or the labor situations of the people behind them. Um, so I have this new book coming out next year that's all interviews with queer indies. And what I found is people who I thought of as like really well-known, really successful, a lot of them are super financially precarious. Um, even people whose games are, you know, we think everyone's downloading them and playing them. Um, some of them are homeless. Some of them are, you know, really scraping by on Patreon. Um, so it raises these questions about who benefits when we celebrate the work of queer folks or other marginalized folks. Like, what's the real material right. reality of that? Um, like Intel, sort of like queer right. washing by bringing in, you know, uh, sort of touting all these games, but then homeless Right. game designer. Yeah. yeah, or, you know, you could say a similar thing about fan labor around, like, a game like Overwatch, right? That, like, fans do a ton of work to create, like, queer, a queer world, to imagine queer characters and queer romances, and then, you know, Overwatch is like, okay, great. Yeah. <laughs> now we're going to incorporate some of that. And there's a positive side, which is, like, the game is becoming more inclusive. Some people feel really empowered by that. But there's also, you know, gives us some pause, like okay, this game is making a ton of money and no compensation has gone to the fans who've kind of done the work of, of creating those queer elements. Yeah, so. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's a discussion that goes, cuts across a lot of yeah. conversations around fans and, um, you know, Playbur, all the, you know, people have been talking about that for a while, but I think it's particularly acute in this situation. Yeah. Um, you know, and another thing that you, uh, you speak about um, in, in, this, in this context uh, is, is you describe queer indie game making as both precarious and potentially exploitative. And we yeah. sort of talked about the uh, exploitative piece of it a little bit, but uh, what, what are some of the other kinds of challenges that you identified um, in, in your interviews with these game makers? Yeah, so sometimes it's folks who um, put work out there and it's being played and being seen but it's being kind of taken up by people in, in positions of more power, positions of more privilege. So, um, you know, people who work for AAA companies who will say, oh, I'm so inspired by the work of this person or this person or this person, and to, because of that, I made this even better game that's now making a ton of money. So right. people are sometimes seeing their work be influential, which seems really great, but then it's ultimately, like, producing more 
producing more money for people that then doesn't feed back to those folks who've done the labor, who've like really put in the work to make these games. Right. Like you can't eat notoriety. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And you can't eat somebody from Intel being like, your game was amazing and it inspired me, right? Because that dude still has his job. Right. He's <laughs> a very well-paid job and you still have a Patreon that makes $1,000 a month. You know? Right. Well, we can hope that someday you can eat that guy. Uh, maybe that will happen. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I just wanted to uh, to wrap up this part of the conversation and then uh, maybe see if Tracy has a, a few questions as well. Um, uh, uh, Talking about your a paper about representing sex workers mm. in video games, which I think, you know, connects to some of these things we talked about, the, the streamers conversation. Mm -hmm. um, you know, part of what I think uh, gets mobilized to delegitimize de uh, the female streamer is this these associations made with the cam girls and the the sort of the porno actor and yeah. the uh, uh, sex worker more broadly um, you know so you you've noted that uh, some of the most prominent examples of feminist commentaries on sex workers in video games tend to read these characters as victims because um, you know they're, they're, they're maybe they've been forced into being sex workers or whatever there's this sort of like um, critique that focuses on objectification um, and yet that seems to be rooted in in some assumptions that need to be questioned you know for example that all sex work is exploitation um, and you argue for an alternate or additional critical approach to talking about representing sex workers in, in video games. I'd love to hear a little bit about what that approach is. Yeah, yeah. So um, like you're saying, the when we normally talk about sex workers in games, you get critiques like um, from Feminist Frequency, for example. Um, often the thing that people talk about most, though it's not, the, the only game by far is like the Grand Theft Auto series. Um, and it's true, there are some really worrisome representations of sex workers where you can do violence to them. Um, I'm not saying that's good. That's definitely not good. <laughs> but um, the place that I come from is a, um, like a pro-sex workers' rights, pro-sex workers' activist position. And there are a lot of sex workers out there um, in the U.S. today who say, you know, this is our work. This is real work. Just because... It's, you know, socially stigmatized doesn't mean this isn't real labor. This is hard work. You know, streaming is like that, too. People yeah. think that it's easy. You stand in front of a camera. Actually, streaming is hard work, and it's hard on your body. Um, there are all kinds of stories I'm finding about that. podcasting exhausting, and, yeah. <laughs> and no one's even looking <laughs> at you. Nobody's even looking at you. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, so, that's, um, so my position is definitely one, um, and it's kind of inspired by uh, the work of Melissa Gyro Grant, who's a, sex, a former sex worker, sex workers' rights activist, and a journalist. Um, and her argument is sex work is work. Mm -hmm. um, sex work is labor. And so if we look at sex workers in games a little differently, to me what's the problem in those games isn't that there are sex workers, because sex work is a legitimate kind of work. It's that we devalue the work that we do in, they do in those games. So like in Grand Theft Auto, you engage a sex worker, and then you take your money back. You take it back by violence, right? And right. you devalue the lives of these sex workers. And um, in a lot of games, uh, you'll, uh, you know, player character will go up to a sex worker and she'll say something like, "Oh, you're just so handsome. For right. you, I'll do it for free." <laughs> um, and it's the repeated devaluing of sex work as work that I think is something we should really sh kind of shift our critique towards in games. 
Right. And it becomes a way to sort of flatter the assumed male player. Yeah. That, you know, like, oh, you're, you're so hot, you don't need to pay for it. And then that feeds into some of these sort of, I think you describe them as fantasies of exceptionalism. Yeah, like you as a player character and by extension as a kind of presumed straight male player are just so, so exciting, so sexy, so handsome that of course you don't pay or you don't pay full price. And then it is a kind of like, um, it's a sort of ego boost that replicates some of the same kind of toxic attitudes that we see in gamer culture. So how, what would be a, a, a way of representing a sex worker in a game um, and, and what sorts of sort of design lessons could somebody take away from this critique? Yeah, that's super interesting. Pay people what they ask. You know, like it's a, we, when we think about NPCs, we tend to talk about NPCs in a couple ways. Like we talk about their believability as characters. That's the kind, the sort of like design development side. And the feminist critique is often like NPCs have no agency. Therefore, they're a problem because they don't get to be full people. That always confuses me. Because an NPC is someone you can't control. Like, right. doesn't it, in that way, they have their own lives, right? They have their own agency that's not yours to mess with. For the most part, you can interact with them. But yeah, like, the NPCs, like, in a novel are, like, all the characters yeah. in the novel. And None uh, of them are playable. Right, but, like, <laughs> the idea that to be, like, if I'm me and I can move myself around, right, but, like, I can't go to you and move you around, right? You have agency that I can't take from you because you're mm -hmm. your own person. That's how I think about NPCs is, like, they're not mine to mess with. I don't know. But that's a strangely unpopular opinion in feminist critiques of games. Like, I wrote that in an article once and got a review back from someone anonymous that was like, I refuse to let this paper go to print <laughs> with that argument in it. It's like, okay. People feel really strongly. Um, but so treating NPCs differently, right? Like sex worker NPCs who are, you know, who ask you for money and you pay them the money and you're like, thank you. And you go about whatever you're going to go about, you know? Right. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I think, and that goes to some interesting and sometimes disturbing conversations about just what, like, NPC means. Totally, yeah. You know, and how that has become kind of synonymous with someone who's disposable and destroyable. Yeah. Um, you know, so you, you hear mass shooters talking about mm. shooting a bunch of NPCs. Mm -hmm. um, and that, uh, you know, it feels like there's, there's a lot of room there to kind of, you know, weirdly kind of humanize the NPC. Yeah. Um, I mean, definitely also don't let sex worker NPCs be the object of violence, you know? Yeah, that would be a good, <laughs> that would a good, be a good step one. to yeah. take. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, Bonnie, thank you so much for this conversation. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I'd love to keep going. Um, and I have a feeling you'll be back on our podcast in the future <laughs> uh, as you continue to create such uh, really transformative work. And uh, we all very much appreciate uh, this, this uh, just this, service that you do for all of us Thank um, you. so uh, I'll open it up to uh, also here I'll just sort of let the listeners know also here is Tracy Fullerton and uh, Tracy's been listening and uh, may have some questions uh, that she'd like to share herself right now wow so I didn't know I was going to be on the spot and I'm not mic'd so um, oh, I, I'll give you my mic no that's here let me just uh, turn this around here um, I think I can uh, I can get on mic here. Uh, so, yeah, I, I actually, uh, I want to go back to the original, the first question that, that Jeff asked you about the title of the book and the sort of bold claim. And I think, you know, I haven't read it, um, but just, you know, hearing you speak about it, uh, 
you know, it's, it's really fascinating to me to think about the history of queerness in games and games making. And I'm wondering if, if you know, from a, a historical point of view, not, a t not all of the wonderful people who are working today, but from more of a historical point of view, I'm wondering if that's something that you touch on in the book to kind of reclaim uh, some of the, the history that perhaps we don't necessarily teach or, um, or acknowledge, uh, you know, as, uh, you know, as, as we sometimes do with, with those yeah. histories. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, that history isn't so much the focus of the book, although there is a, so there's a chapter that's about Pong, for example, and it's about a queer reading of Pong, um, and how we can put that as this, you know, of course, classic game alongside um, Eve Sedgwick's Between Men, which is a kind of foundational queer theory text. So what happens if we take like one of the like most like influential canonical games, most influential queer theory books, and what happens if we read them together? There's a little bit more conceptual. But in terms of the history of people making games, um, so there is um, a catalog for a show that was in Berlin earlier this year that I would totally recommend. The show is called The Rainbow Arcade, um, and it's part of the work that Adrian Shaw has been doing, specifically around kind of bringing back to the surface all these LGBT characters that have been in our games since the beginning. So she's been doing some amazing stuff, digging up um, games from the 70s that were about queer people. A lot of it was, you know, you'd make something, you'd share it with your queer community, um, and then just really surfacing, you know, we think that there aren't queer characters in games, but actually, like, if we look more closely, they've been there all along. Um, and then the other person I'll plug is uh, Whitney Pow, who's been doing archival work at the Strong Museum, um, looking at early trans developers um, and kind of pulling out those primary documents and saying, again, we don't, we talk about people like they haven't been here until recently, but they've been here, they've been doing this work um, for decades. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I often think about um, Danny Buttonberry, who's exactly. really probably the most famous, um, and how, uh, you know, I would always uh, uh, hear people either refer to her um, by her, you know, given name, her, um, her birth name, um, or, uh, you know, Danny Buttonberry, and um, there was never any discussion of the, hmm. the, the transition, uh, there was never any acknowledgement, there was like you either kind of talked about one era or the other, hmm. uh, in a sense, um, for the longest time. Uh, and, I, I, and uh, you know, having um, kind of overlapped just a little bit in the early part of my career, I remember being uh, sort of fascinated by uh, her design and how, how many people were uh, truly inspired by the, so the social nature of some, a game like Mule, for example, uh, the sort of very sp uh, special differences of the kind of work that was being done hmm. um, at, at a uh, you know, very high commercial level, you know? Um, and yet there was no discussion hmm. around that of the fact that this was a queer person making um, hmm. this game. So even people who were using her correct name, were using her correct pronouns, like after her transition, there was the folks weren't talking about what it meant for her to be trans and making I mean, these games. There wasn't. I mean, this was really pre the the days of the internet and social media yeah, that we know. I mean, there's internet, but there wasn't like it wasn't the social media that we know. So you know, it's it's possible that I just don't know about these conversations or these writings and, and um, these histories 
uh, that's maybe something I'm, you know, I'm just missing. It's why I ask if, if yeah. the book touches on things like this. Yeah, no, not so much in that project, but I think that there's really great stuff coming out. And that's why um, I mentioned the materials at the Strong and what Whitney Powell's doing, because it's really about, like, digging out. You know, I think she's looking through letters, she's looking through notes. Oh, nice. Um, and just trying to tell this history that hasn't been told. Right. Yeah. Mm. Wonderful. Well, I look forward to hearing more uh, during the talk tonight. Um, and Jeff, do you want to close us out? Well, thanks again, Bonnie. Really yeah. great to see you. And uh, yeah, looking forward to the talk tonight. Thanks for coming. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. I appreciate it. So you mentioned that you're a QGCon organizer. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I'm, I mean, I'm from GamerX, so I help out, oh, awesome. uh, volunteer there, but, uh, and we try to, you know, try to do the coasts uh, in the U.S., but um, uh, does, like, I know QGCon now has been sort of in Canada recently for the past few years. Yeah. Uh, is there any, like, future plans to bring it back to the States? Yeah, so um, QGCon, the Queerness and Games Conference, started, just for some background to answer your question, um, started at Berkeley, uh, then was here at USC. Wait, no, did I do something in between? Berkeley, USC, then Concordia. Am I missing one? So most recently it's been in uh, Montreal at Concordia. And the reason is that it follows whoever's in charge. <laughs> so I was a grad student at Berkeley, then I was a postdoc here at USC, and now Jess Marcotte, um, who's a PhD student at Concordia, is at Concordia. Um, for reasons that have to do with the cost, it's like easier to stick at an institution where somebody can get us access to stuff. Gotcha. Uh, so if someone else wants to take over and bring it back to California, <laughs> yes. But also, our, we have an arcade as well as talks. So if you are a game maker or you want to give a talk, um, our CFP and our call for games just went out due October 15th. And we are super friendly to people from all kinds of backgrounds. You don't need like traditional credentials. So submit. Come hang out with us in Canada. We have travel grants, too. Oh, OK. Yes. <laughs> Thank you so much. That is wonderful. My question is regarding the idea of potentiality you referred to, where there is a constant deferral at work, where there is no closure, which is expected, and going against the intended flow of the narrative. Mm. So it's just wondering, you know, in terms of like, your activism, and uh, in terms of solidifying a community whom you work for, and this idea of curing the you know game per se, how does that go hand in hand? Because I see some kind of contradiction in work. Yeah. There, there is a kind of a forward kind of anticipation which is already there. Yeah. That there is a future which is in the making that you're interested in. Yeah. At the same time, you're also working with community. Because yeah. the gamers, as you said, are from the community. They are actively engaging in mobilizing their resources. So how do you, go the, how do you deal with this back and forth relationship between you know, the forwardness, futurity, and this contemporary present momentness? Yeah, so maybe, can I restate that a little and see if I got it? So, um, so in the work, and I think you're right, that in the work there's a kind of tension, so like futurity, how it, okay, so there's a tension in the work between kind of the present and the future in a way that's about both the research side and also the activism side. Um, and I think that you're right, that there is a tension there. And I would say that for me, how I often identify that is, um, Queer theory has a, a weird relationship to futurity, right? Because on the one hand, you have folks like Jose Munoz, who is thinking about queerness as a future, right? As a potential that we can never really reach. Um, you have folks like Lee Edelman, who's thinking about the lack of future, right? Like, 
literally his famous book is No Future. Um, and I think that uh, queer people are often aware that the future we're supposed to be striving towards is a kind of like normative, oppressive future. So there's, a, there's like a fundamental tension there. Um, and I think you're, that that's in the work too, right? That on the one hand, I really want to like stay and linger in this present moment and get like super intimate with games and like pull them apart and get, I really like this idea of reading something too closely as a kind of present practice of a game. But I also do want things for my community to change in the future. Like I do want to create community activism that makes the people I care about feel better and safer and happier in games. It's something I think about a lot. Um, but I don't think there is ever like one clear answer. Building on that, it seems like that tension is particularly acute in educational games. Yeah. Um, I, I'm an um, educator and education researcher um, in the PhD program here, and I'm interested in, in games about futurity, yeah. um, critical imagination about futures. But I'm trying to figure out how to design those and how to, how to um, build learning environments that can support you imagining those that don't kind of get into this sort of quantum uh, normative or sort yeah. of reproductive futurist politics of like, um, the future of, of sort of sac sacrificing desire now for uh, a future we're striving for. Yeah. And I, I something about I really love your your framing of your conceptualization of degamification, mm. and I, that seems like that might be a promising way to address that. I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that of degamification in learning games or education. Yeah, learning games. So the question was, I'm just repeating back for the recording. So the, the question was um, whether, uh, how this question of futurity might come up around educational games and what it might work, and what it might mean to design games for education that engage with futurity without representing, like replicating those oppressive norms um, and other stuff too. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think the education space is such an interesting one because Gamification, I think, still has one of its strongest holds in educational games, right? I think a lot of other games folks are very critical of gamification, but I think you still see it a lot in educational games. Um, but I like that idea. I, I think that sounds great, that you could instead use educational games to deconstruct, like rather than to translate something into a game as an educational experience, to, to pull apart those, those game-like structures, right? Um, and I'm not sure what that looks like exactly. Like, it might look like involving students in a design process um, that's about, like, taking something that you identify as kind of already problematically game-like and being like, how can we remake this in a kind of playful experience that strips away that, that problematic part? Could be cool. There was another piece of what you asked. Um, I think it was very similar to your question. I mean, yeah. Um, you know, wanting to make games that, that are sort of fighting for a free future, yeah. for imagining imagining worlds free from white supremacy and heteronormativity yeah. and capital, and, but then how do we do that without getting into this sort of sacrifice desire now for yeah. futurist vision? There's um, a kind of strain within queer indie games that I'm really drawn to, uh, which is like post-apocalyptic queer games. Um, so uh, Heather Flowers and... Uh, Ryan Rose, who came out of this program, um, have a game that is called Gender Wrecked, um, which is really amazing. Um, yeah, gen gender Wrecked, all one word. Um, and it's kind of queerness after the end of the world. Right? And we see this also in Anthropy's games, game, which is called Queers in Love at the End of the World. Um, so there's a kind of like, what comes after? 
Like the world has ended. Our future is done. What comes after that? And that as a kind of space of queer potential. Yeah, I think it's really like appealing to people. Thanks. Okay. Kind of related to the what comes after question and the chrononormativity uh, concept, I was wondering about the idea of teleology yeah. in terms of de-gamification and how, especially for kind of um, games that have a narr narrative to them, I'm thinking about like Reason Love at the End of the World, which has a narrative but also a repetition to it yeah. because the gameplay is so short that you kind of um, again, again, cycling yeah. through multiple times. Um, and I'm wondering how, like, if degamification is also related to games that are necessarily anti-teleological because mm. this, the kind of maybe satisfaction of having an ending or the normative satisfaction of having an ending is inherently oppositional maybe to the fact that like, yeah. and if that, I'm kind of stitching this together clumsily, but if that lack of teleology also might have a political potentiality in terms of like the work itself of the game. Uh, index to world is not done. Yeah. I'm yeah. just curious to get your thoughts on So this, the simple version I'll repeat back from your very uh, nuanced question was uh, whether games, the relationship between endings in games and the kind of degamification and it's like um, possibility to resist normative structures. Yeah. So I think, um, absolutely. I think games that resist endings, resist goals that repeat, like there's a lot of potential in, in changing what we think a game should be and changing what we think the, our plans for life should be, right? You think about um, something like Maddie Bryce's Minichi, which is one of the earliest games in this kind of queer games avant-garde. It's M, sorry, I'm dyslexic, M-A-I-N-I-C-H-I, -I -I, Minichi, um, which is just like a two-minute game that's about Maddie's experiences as a trans woman of color walking down the streets of San Francisco, but it repeats and repeats and repeats. Um, and so you have to play again and again. There's no way to end that game except just to stop. Right? And that itself is absolutely a political statement, right? Like, this is the life of what it means to inhabit, you know, Maddie's body, Maddie's, Maddie's identity. Um, and that's totally, I think you're totally right that that's political. Yeah, sorry, in the back. I was just curious to see, uh, bringing in the concept, or rather, bringing in the experience of let's play yeah. and and those types of communities and how they now take video games and operate on a separate social media platform. I'm curious to see what your thoughts are or how your book comments on these social media platforms as additional queer space. Yeah, so Let's Plays are super interesting. I've also been doing work with um, my amazing PhD students at UCI on streaming and on Twitch. Um, yeah, so they add... So, okay, so the question was what happens when uh, around queerness in games when we bring games onto other platforms, onto other social media platforms, um, like YouTube with Let's Plays. I feel like I need to spend more time thinking about the positive things. So far, the things I've thought about are the kind of negative things, which are like um, Robert Yang's games, which are amazing and super queer and just like unabashedly sexual. There are tons of videos on YouTube. There are tons of Let's Plays. And the vast majority are really homophobic. So these games that are just like loud and sexy and out there and I love them, then to see that they have such visibility on YouTube with people making these like nasty homophobic comments while they play them, those videos have been watched far more times than Robert's game has been downloaded, you know? Um, and then on Twitch, you also have people playing games that have like 
queer potential or interesting, but there's like Twitch is full of harassment and like problems with hate speech around chat. I got it, but I, I'm gonna try and take the like queer optimist <laughs> approach and think about the good things too. I'm wondering, uh, thank you for the talk, by the way, it's really great. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the, the speedrunning portion yeah. of, and the, maybe a, like the speedrunning communities that you seem to be talking yeah. about. Because I'm really, I'm really curious about how you've located queerness there in terms of, like for you, you've observed that like, there are more transgender people in speedrunning than maybe other sorts of like gaming uh, yeah. communities, as you said. Because like, when I think of speedrunning, I tend to think of sort of the opposite. I think of like high levels of speed and technical mastery to the point of like, exploding a system in some ways, but you mm. have to master it in order to do that. And so I'm really struck by sort of um, the idea of chrononormativity as opposed to speedrunning and reading queerness into it. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, so speedrunning um, is, a, is a practice. So the question is about speedrunning, and I don't, you all have such great questions. I don't know how to summarize them. Speedrunning. Um, speedrunning is something I feel really mixed about. So I keep writing about it, and I'd like to stop. <laughs> But it keeps happening because I see this practice of like playing games in ways they weren't intended, playing games built around community knowledge. So speedrunning tends to be like, you know, like I find a glitch, you find a glitch, you find a way to shave off a like millisecond, I do, and then that community knowledge is shared. Like I think those things are really interesting and they do resist the way that we normally think about playing games. Um, but like I said, the community doesn't think of itself as queer. And also there are times that speedrunning a game you can think of as straightening a game, not queering a game. Um, so I wrote a piece uh, somewhat recently about speedrunning Gone Home and what it means to speed take this game. Yeah, people speedrun Gone Home. It's actually like a really popular, there's a big sub-community, yeah. Um, it's like to take this game that we celebrate as this queer game and it like seems to be about meandering, right? It's a walking sim with all the like things that that comes with and people speedrun it in like 17 seconds. You like walk in the door if you know Gone Home, you can walk in the door, you can trigger the last diary entry, and then you can go straight upstairs. But when you watch like really, really good speedrunners have gone home, it's literally all about straightness. Like, like it's about walking through the door, finding the straightest possible line, and then following the straightest possible line. And it cuts out all the queerness. Like the community has decided the game is over before the um, the story in the attic plays. So there's like the story that's like you know, these two girls finally get together and the speedrunning community has been like, no, nope, not relevant. Game clocks before that starts. So it's like, I don't, I, there's this tension for me. Like, how do you find this, like, non-normative play that also re-normativizes? I feel like it also, I feel like, because queerness has always has that tension in it. Yeah. It's sort of related to the question that Darshan and Allison and everyone else was bringing up. And that, I think, speedrunning also sort of activates that tension really well. Yeah. Exactly the way that you said yeah, you should write about it so I can stop writing. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, well, yeah, one last question. Thanks. Okay. Um, so, I was wondering, in making games, what is your opinion of the right balance between a really, like, the subtle queerness in games like in Iron Bread that you described, yeah. and the really overt, like, here are games, queerness yeah. in games, that a game maker would put with the objective of like making the player more comfortable with Yeah, it kind of depends who your imagined player is, right? Um, who do you, yeah, who are you thinking you would be designing for? Um, 
I would like to imagine the straightest, most cisgender, okay. normative player. Getting that person to get comfortable with queerness is kind of a triumph. Yeah. So the question is, how do you, what's the right balance in design so that if you're designing for an imagined straight player, you can um, bring queer elements in that make, while making them comfortable? Yeah, I don't know that there is any like one sweet spot answer for that. I think that different game designers would say different things. Like some queer game designers would say, my goal is not to make people comfortable, right? They would say, like, I'm here making queer things because that's who I am and it's not for straight people. Um, I do know other people who feel like I'm here to educate, right? I'm here to try and make allies. And I think they would say to, like, be a little bit subtler and a little bit less, um, just, like, more generally relatable human stories that happen to have queer people in them. So there, there are all kinds. My personal politics are the kind of, like, make it hella queer and y'all can deal, you know? <laughs> but that's not always the most... It depends what your goals are, you know? Yeah. Well, that's... Uh, well, that's fun.